All right, I want to uh, welcome you to the final session of, of this uh, very stimulating conference. I'm Chris Aiken. I'm a member of the politics department here and a member of the uh, executive committee of the, of the Madison program. And uh, beyond that, have no qualifications whatsoever. Uh, I'm probably the least informed person in this room on the subject uh, that we're about to undertake, but I believe I'm capable of keeping the time. Uh, and so that's, that's my role. The subject of this last session, as you know from the program, is Does Democracy Need Religion? Which has been a central focus of our conversations here these, these two days. And we have uh, two speakers, and I'll introduce the, the first one. It's, uh, and that person is pa uh, Professor Patrick Deneen, who is a chaired associate professor at uh, Georgetown. He is uh, an, act, an extremely appropriate choice for this topic. His recent book is called The Odyssey of Political Theory and Democratic Faith. He also a, was also a professor here for several years. Uh, Pat, I hope while you're here you'll go over to the bookstore because your book is on prominent display under faculty authors. So we still, we, <laughs> we still claim you. And, uh, uh, you may be gone, but you are by no means uh, forgotten. So he will uh, take the first, take the first podium first. Well, thank you, uh, Chris, um, and uh, it's uh, it's been for me a delight to be back on campus. I, uh, many of you know I taught here for eight years, uh, seeming an, et an eternity yet not long enough. Uh, and this is really my first occasion to come back since uh, leaving for Georgetown this past fall. Um, some of the things I remember fondly about Princeton haven't changed. I walked down Nassau Street yesterday and ran into about six people that I knew, uh, which was both, it's both a good thing about Princeton and also a bad thing about Princeton. Um, but let me just take the opportunity uh, to thank uh, Robbie George for um, uh, hosting uh, this particular program. And I think further and more deeply, uh, during my time here, the Madison program was started and I noticed uh, a, a sort of sea change in the conversation when this, when this program began, that, that uh, voices and conversations uh, began to be heard on campus that weren't heard otherwise in a way that was uh, non-doctrinaire, open, and uh, um, extremely uh, stimulating. And I think this conference has been really a, a testament to his vision of this program. And secondly, let me thank my former colleague and, and my, my good friend Maurizio Veroli for hosting this, uh, uh, sponsoring this, and for, for inviting me. I'm honored to be uh, in this session. The last thing I just want to acknowledge is that uh, walking down Nassau Street yesterday, I noticed that the annex is out of business. And I just want to point out that it wasn't even a year after I left that this happened. <laughs> and I just want to just point that out. Whether it's a coincidence, I don't know. but. <clears throat> I, I actually uh, uh, spent about the last uh, hour and a half uh, uh, rewriting what I prepared, uh, which is the disadvantage of, of having this last panel slot, uh, in part because so many of the conversations have been so stimulating, and, and I wanted to respond to a number of things. Uh, that being said, I, uh, um, I will, um, at various points, certainly be alluding to some of the things that have been said in previous sessions, uh, but also I, I do think that I have perhaps a different uh, take on some of these issues, and so I hope that uh, this can be the cause of further reflection and debate on, on, on a number of these issues. Well, let me begin with the title of this, of this panel, Does Democracy Need Religion? It seems to me the title of this panel poses a question whose answer must be obvious to most of you. 
yes, democracy needs religion. And no, of course, democracy does not need religion. It seems to me appropriate to recognize at the outset that that the answer to this question may be settled for most of you already, which makes me wonder why you're even here, Uh, and that a good many of you will disagree with a good many of others uh, of you here on the answer to this question. To some, obviously, democracy needs religion in order to survive and flourish. Democracy needs the moral underpinnings and certainties provided by religious belief and religious dogma. Otherwise, a non-foundational, relativistic, and even nihilistic democratic polity will come into existence, a kind of Nietzschean uh, last man scenario of the rule of the, of the strong over the weak. To others of you, and maybe fewer of you, since this is a Madison program event and not a center, University Center for Human Values colloquium, the answer is equally obvious, that liberal democracy in particular does not need religion in the sense of requiring its active cultivation of, uh, or religious faith, in, or in any way extending official recognition of religious policy, of religion or religious dogma to the polity. Religion, and particularly religious diversity, is tolerated as a matter of private conscience, which has no bearing whatsoever on issues of governance, and rather insists upon the sufficiency of rational deliberation in arriving at various policy decisions. Liberal democracy, in particular, with a stress upon liberal, permits but does not need religion. What I'd like to suggest in my comments this afternoon is that we should notice how new and unusual this particular question is. Does democracy need religion? This question would be all but unconceivable to previous thinkers who we might broadly characterize as liberals, uh, as liberals who constituted the, the liberal tradition on the one hand and for believers in the religious tradition on the other. For liberal thinkers, and early liberal thinkers especially, it went without saying that liberalism and liberal democracy needed religion. Religion was an incontrovertible necessity for liberal theory from its earliest moments. This fact will prove very upsetting to contemporary liberals, but the irony that I wish to point out is that originally this question, so formulated, proved upsetting not to liberals per se, but to religious thinkers, and especially Christians. We've heard a lot of reasons for that today and yesterday. From the view of the traditional faithful, especially Christian faithful, the question itself, as it was posed, is illegitimate. One might ask not uh, whether democracy needs religion, but at least preliminarily, whether religion should really care about democracy. The current question, does democracy need religion, implicitly misstates the priority of the divine to the secular, of the city of God to the city of man, as I think was eloquently uh, articulated by Peter Lawler uh, earlier today. Again, we should savor the irony about the title of this session. Originally a question that would have been disturbing to Christian believers. It is now a question, uh, uh, a question that liberals would prefer no longer to see posed at all. A question that originally would have been answered obviously in the affirmative by liberal theorists is now seen as a necessary question and a challenge to contemporary democracy by religious believers. How did we arrive at this strange reversal of understanding? Before I attempt to answer this question, actually by way of answering this question, let me spend a little time substantiating some of my opening claims, and it's particularly that uh, liberal theorists long recognize that democracy, liberal democracy, needs religion. Contemporary understandings of liberalism stress liberalism's strenuous efforts to disentangle the disastrous intermingling of church and state that led to the religious wars of the 17th century. 
Judas Schlar made famous the formulation that liberalism was, was, was founded on a liberalism of fear. According to Schlar, liberalism arose as a result of the horror, disgust, and fear at the carnage of those wars of religion. And that's a fear that I've heard posed several times in some of the question and answer sessions uh, over, this, over the last two days. Liberalism arose especially as the effort to limit government's power, to cease the state's efforts to make men moral, as one formulation, or to secure the salvation of people's eternal souls, and in particular took the form of efforts to separate the state's functions and roles from those of churches or synagogues or mosques or what you will. Many contemporary liberals look preeminently to the thought of John Locke, who's again been mentioned several times, and especially his texts, the Second Treatise of Government and a Letter Concerning Toleration, is laying out the foundations of liberal thought. Locke strenuously articulated the appropriate boundaries that were to define and limit the legitimate concerns of the state. As he wrote in his Letter Concerning Toleration, the objects that comprise, quote, the civil interest, that which the civil, the, uh, the civil body can uh, uh, actually interfere legislatively with, are limited, quote, to life, liberty, health, and indolency of body, and the possession of outward things, such as money, lands, houses, furniture, and the like. The state is permitted to enact legislation that impacts on outward, largely physical uh, uh, spheres of our, of our lives. Uh, life, liberty, health, indolency of body. Right? I like especially that the state can address our indolence, the suggestion that the state can prevent us from being couch potatoes. Alternatively, Locke insists that the civil power neither, and here I quote, neither can nor ought in any manner to be extended to the salvation of souls. While the state may interfere in our corporeal and physical capacities, and yet even here, within the limits that are established by the social contract and our unalienable rights, the sovereign is said to be under a prohibition against interfering in matters of religious belief. Yet we should notice that this prohibition is not as categorical as first appears to be the case. For this prohibition applies to any efforts on the part of the sovereign to compel his subjects to a particular religious belief, and not religious belief altogether. The sovereign is, in fact, charged with assuming a neutral toleration toward all particular religious beliefs, but not to religious belief itself. At the conclusion of a letter concerning toleration, Locke makes two exceptions uh, to the extension of toleration. In other words, two exceptions that will not be tolerated. The first of these is that there will be no tolerating those religious traditions that recognize a foreign religious leader uh, who, uh, and uh, one who can threaten uh, legitimate sovereigns with excommunication from their particular sect. Guess, guess which religion that one is. Uh, the second one, and, and more important for the purpose of this particular discussion, Locke uh, argues as follows. Those are not to be at all tolerated who deny the being of God. Promises, covenants, and oaths, which are the bonds of humane society, can have no hold upon an atheist. The taking away of God, though but even in thought, dissolves all. Locke here follows Hobbes in holding a relatively dim view of human motivations, concluding like Hobbes that rational, self-interested calculation is insufficient, while sufficient to bring us from a state of nature into civil society, it's insufficient to ensure ongoing adherence to the terms of the social contract that holds society together. Now, where it's famously articulated in the free rider problem, as, as it's now articulated. However, in Locke's efforts to secure a greater sphere for liberty, and for, uh, both for individuals and, uh, and, and corresponding limits upon government, Locke, unlike Hobbes, does not pose the need for an all-seeing leviathan. 
to enforce the terms of the contract. Now, contemporary liberals conclude that Locke has no good grounds to refuse extension of toleration to atheists, suggesting instead that Locke's own endorsement of human rationality can serve as sufficient grounds for rejecting this vestigial historical belief, uh, which is, was stated by Princeton's own Stephen Macedo, quote, that divine punishment is a crucial motive for good conduct. But we need to notice that Locke's position is less a vestigial historical oddity than a reflection of an absence of extensive belief in both the capacity of self-interest on the one hand and reason on the other to secure obedience and to maintain public order. And this, I think, was Maurizio Veroli's point uh, in his question earlier this morning. Now, it has been stated several times in the course of this conference that America was founded on an extensively Lockean basis. And I want to suggest that this is, this is actually also the case with respect for Locke's commendation of enforced religious belief in a deity. We should notice, and I want to point out that we should notice that there's an extensive compatibility between, up to some extent, the Rousseauian form of civil religion that has been ably described in past sessions and the Lockean view of the need of the sovereign to command a belief in the deity. Recall that Rousseau's civil religion at once demands belief in a deity, belief in an afterlife where we are appropriately rewarded or punished, but leaves an extensive sphere for private worship so long as no one is outwardly uh, or physically uh, harmed in, uh, as, as, as a consequence of that worship uh, or that one uh, exhibits forms of intolerance in one's own belief. All of this is in accord with Locke's own version of the, of the demand uh, and the necessity of the sovereign to enforce religious belief. And both of these forms, both uh, Locke and Rousseau, uh, um, both stress, above all, religion's utility, and not, as Peter Lawler would insist upon, its truth. I want to at least suggest, then, that the efforts that have been I mean, heroic efforts uh, to draw a bright line between Rousseau's nutty form of civil religion, which leads to the French Revolution on the one hand, and America's Lockean sobriety on the other, ought to be at least put somewhat in doubt when we consider not only the resemblance of Rousseau to Locke on this score, but some of the evidence, at least, from America's own colonial history. One sees, in particular, in, in various colonial American documents and speeches, a stress upon religious belief as a prerequisite for liberal citizenship. Now, contemporary liberals, of course, now regard the First Amendment of the Constitution as re erecting a high wall of separation between religion and state, church and state. But far from it, it's in its original conception, of course, the First Amendment represented a victory by the original opponents of the Constitution, the Anti-Federalists, uh, among whom was a large number who sought protection of what were then a number of existing state establishments. So the law, the, the First Amendment's prohibition against establishing Congress, establishing religion, was meant to protect state establishments at this time. Now, the first 10 amendments were grudgingly proposed in the first Congress by James Madison, who feared that without this Bill of Rights, uh, the opponents of the Constitution would call a new constitutional convention, one that would undo the work of the first constitutional and, to this point, only constitutional convention. The First Amendment, in fact, implicitly ratified existing Lockean-esque requirements in the states that people evince religious belief as one of the obligations of citizenship. Consider several articles from a number of state constitutions that were in existence at this time. Uh, and all of these would, be, would have been originally protected under the First Amendment. 
The second article of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, while on the one hand defending the right to worship in the manner that one believes, also declared, quote, it is the right as well as the duty of all men in society publicly and at stated seasons to worship the supreme being, that's capital letters, the great creator and preserver of the universe is their duty. The Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 also defended the right to worship in the manner according to one's own conscience, but further stated, quote, nor can any man who acknowledges the being of a god be justly deprived or abridged of any right as a citizen, which suggests that people who do not acknowledge the being of a god could have their rights abridged. The 1776 Virginia Declaration of Rights is one of my favorites. Uh, it's kind of wonderfully specific and nonspecific at the same time, announcing in section 16, quote, that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity toward each other. Imagine the, the prosecution that could exist if you're going, this is sort of like the last episode of Seinfeld, right? They didn't practice the Good Samaritan Clause, and this was the, the Virginia Declaration of Rights. One must practice uh, Christian charity and love toward one another. As has been mentioned in the course of uh, several of the sessions, perhaps no figure more perfectly summarized early liberal democratic expectation that religious faith was necessary and required as a support for liberal self-governance than George Washington, who in terms that are almost, we could say almost explicitly Lockean, cautioned in his farewell address against the supposition, quote, that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on the minds of peculiar structure, Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Washington seems kind of pine for you know, sufficiently rational people, but he acknowledges we're not likely to get a lot of those. Now, as I said, um, as I said at the outset, the question posed by the session, the democ the, does democracy need religion, was so obvious in some senses, it didn't need to be asked by the founders of classical and American liberalism and was understood as a necessary prerequisite to liberal self-governance, at least as, as recently, again, as it's been mentioned several times, as in the early 50s when President Eisenhower, nobody has said the quote yet, so let me say it, President Eisenhower famously stated, quote, our form of government makes no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. The question then naturally comes to the fore, I would think. How is it that liberalism, contemporary liberalism, Abandon its assumption, long-standing assumption, that liberal regimes require and ought to require a belief in a deity. And now have become, we, now when we talk about liberals, have become ardent proponents of driving any form of religious faith or evidence of religious practice from, quote, the public square. What changed? Well, I want to suggest what changed, of course, was liberalism's original dim view of, of human beings' rational capacity to govern our ethical behavior. A revolution in liberal thought that was made possible, I suggest, and I submit, by an embrace of a belief in progress. Standing between thinkers like Locke and even George Washington and our Rawlsian public reason crowd are thinkers like John Stuart Mill in Europe and John Dewey in America, and those are just a couple of, a couple of examples. In his classic treatise on liberty, Mill described human beings, quote, as progressive beings, as creatures in some ways defined by a kind of elasticity, as marked by near-infinite possibility of improvement and perfectibility. Dewey, of course, became America's great proponent of education, 
although there were proponents of education before Dewey, but a particular kind of education, one that no longer sought to convey or saw education as a way of conveying old and dead and tired knowledge of the past, but rather who sought the creation of what he called new men from the raw material of infinitely imp improvable pupils. The teacher wrote Dewey in his brief essay, My Pedagogic Creed, is, quote, the usherer in of the true kingdom of heaven. Now, this formulation of Dewey suggests what we can, could regard as grounds for the radical reversal among what I'm going to now call progressive liberals on the question of religion. And what I would also suggest is really the in most cases the contemporary liberal view and hostility toward religion. No longer was religion seen as supportive of the state, since now, for progressive liberals, the state was increasingly understood as a primary vehicle by which progress was to be effected and accomplished. Since religion was recommended by early liberals, not because it was true, Peter Lawler sense, but because it was useful, as the progressive assumption took hold, the former belief in the salutary nature of religion gave way to an active hostility to traditional religious belief. Mill, for instance, and this is in his, again, in his treatise, uh, John Stuart Mill in his treatise on liberty, in which he, ex he recommends the experimentation of lifestyles, kind of early 1960s, you know, do your own thing, nevertheless condemned one particular, quote-unquote, lifestyle, which was Calvinism. It's kind of odd. He has this two pages where he condemns Calvinists, a particular lifestyle that we ought not to have, since we could say, given its Augustinian lineage, that Calvinism features, centrally features, uh, to, our, to our consideration, the permanence of original sin, of our depravity, and the, the impossibility of achieving salvation in the seculum, in the this time. These are among, its, of course, the central and famous tenets. Traditional religious belief that maintained a strong belief in the fall, in fact, posed a threat to progressive assumptions and must, uh, needed to be extirpated if everyone was to get on board the progressive bandwagon. In a kind of prescient anticipation of aspects of Rawls's argument in political liberalism, not all lifestyle choices are the same. Uh, we can't be entirely neutral between them. And what is the least tolerable are those residual beliefs in traditional religion that directly contradict and stand in the way of the theory and hopefully, in the view of some, the march of progress. This does not mean, however, that religion, even among progressive liberals, disappears from the scene but that, in fact, and here I, maybe I'm the first person to allude to the title of the conference, uh, Civic Religion, oh, The Political God of Our Times, that's the one, The Political God of Our Times, that, in fact, democracy, in some respects, comes to replace traditional religion. Daniel Mahoney, yesterday in a question, spoke about Mill's embrace of Comte's religion of humanity, which is in some ways, uh, a version of this. It's a religion Comte recommends as a, a religion in which humans are animated by a kind of beneficent fellow feeling. We transcend our narrow self-interest, kind of come to love the whole, a kind of intuitive solidarity with the rest of humanity. It's, uh, we don't call it religion of humanity, humanity anymore. We now call it cosmopolitanism. And in America, John Dewey worked toward the creation of what he called a common faith, mentioned by Bill McClay today, although I, I think I differ fairly substantially with Bill in my, my, my view toward the common faith. Uh, the common faith was one which was, uh, uh, I think, not quite as accommodating toward traditional religion as, as Bill McClay was suggesting. Uh, even in his essay, A Common Faith, Dewey is hostile toward traditionalist religions that posit 
the possibility or even likelihood that God's ways are not man's ways. Indeed, Dewey suggested that traditional, traditional religious belief, here understood in its Calvinist or Augustinian form, deficiently understood the progressive nature of revelation itself, that traditional religions tended to think that revelation was complete. We have the book. Right? Uh, and therefore, that traditional religion was an ossified collection of unreflective ritual. Dewey instead argued that revelation was an ongoing process, no longer divinely inspired, but the result of the progressive engine of democracy itself. This is an argument that he made explicitly in an essay, a very revealing essay, which he entitled Christianity and Democracy, in which he argued, and I quote, it is in democracy the community of ideas and the interest through the community of action that the incarnation of God, parentheses, man, that is to say, as the organ of truth, end parenthesis, becomes a living, present thing. The truth is brought down to life. It's segregation removed. It is made a common truth enacted in all departments of action, not the isolated sphere called religion. Dewey, Mill, and many other progressives, progressive liberals, and here one could think include Comte as well as Marx and many others, call for the collapsing of that traditional Augustinian division between the city of man and the city of God. The segregation is removed. And for the creation, frequently called for the, for the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. This remains, I would suggest, a less evident subtext, but nevertheless a subtext among today's most ferocious secularists, which I, in some ways is, is the right word, but in some ways is deceptive, because there is uh, lying underneath it a quasi-religious belief in the possibility of perfecting the this time. And who, for har who among these secularists, far from having abandoned the idea of salvation, have simply translated it into political language. I want to just just uh, pause to, to note that we should we should notice something that deeply connects older Lockean liberalism, classical liberalism, and contemporary, more contemporary, pragmatic. I'm sorry, progressive liberalism, which is that neither, in a certain sense, is particularly enthusiastic about democracy. In the case of classical liberalism, the argument about the need for an enforced belief in God reflects a perceived weakness in the strength of reason and the deficiencies of self-interest in securing the moral and political spheres. While Locke of the Second Treatise provides a reason-based justification for limited government, he does not actually conclude that most people will be governed by such rational moral thinking in their daily affairs. Uh, and in a passage, this is sort of borne out from a passage from a later work that he wrote called The Reasonableness of Christianity, one that infuriates contemporary Lockeans because it seems so anti-Lockean, but I think does reflect this view of the kind of, the, a, a sort of deeper view of a kind of sense of the incapacity of most people's rational capacities. Locke reveals the extent of his own doubts. This is what he wrote in, that, in this work. He says, the greatest part of mankind want leisure or capacity for demonstration, rational demonstration. Nor can they carry a train of proofs. They're not good logicians. In which, uh, in, in that way, they must always depend upon for conviction and cannot be required to assent until they see demonstration. You may as well hope, I'm continuing to quote, you may as well hope that all the day laborers and tradesmen, the spinsters and dairymaids become perfect mathematicians as to have them perfect in ethics in this way. Hearing plain commands is the sure and only course to bring them obedience and practice. The, break, the greatest part cannot know and therefore must believe. The instruction of the people were 
best still to be left to the precepts and principles of the gospel. Now, while America's Lockean founders don't go quite this far, their mistrust of ordinary citizens' capacities for sustained rational thought is, in some senses, drawn from this Lockean store and is itself well known. Uh, James Madison, no disrespect to the program, uh, wrote in Federalist 55, speaking about the need to limit the size of the House of Representatives, quote, in all very numerous assemblies of whatever, whatever character composed, whatever the character of the people who are in the assembly, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. My favorite line of the Federalist Papers, had every Athenian been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. Lacking that progressive assumption of Mill and Dewey, etc., Madison rejects the supposition that the proper aim of the new government should be the formation of a democracy. Rather, the Constitution founds explicitly a republic, and, the, and in particular features representation and an enlarged orbit, a big country, that will minimize both the need and the capacity of ordinary citizens to become active participants or actively engage in public life. Now, in a different way, and one less readily perceptible perhaps, the inheritors of Mill and Dewey are also deeply suspicious toward democracy. And you have to actually put aside for a moment the fact they all love democracy. Alongside the progressive assumption is a perception of a deep chasm that separates currently unprogressed human beings, recidivists of some kind, from their more perfect future beings. Indeed, people are apt to be sort of traditional or parochial in some way or another, a.k.a. evangelicals. And in, Locke, in both Locke and Mill, as well as in Comte and Marx, there is an explicit call for a vanguard, for, a, for an elite uh, to, who will advance progress in the name of the people, in their name. So it's, it's all right then. Where the people resist, we can simply accuse them of false consciousness and assist them in their march toward perfection. Democracy may be the end state, the goal of progress, a promised land for adequately perfected humans. But in the meantime, Mill, for instance, in addition to calling for plural voting by the well-educated, I think a terrible idea if you gave college professors more than one vote, uh, also justifies, and this is probably the most scandalous part of Mill that not many people talk about, justifies Mill's call for the enslavement of backward civilization until we can bring them to a properly sufficiently industrialized status. People must be made worthy for democracy. And in that sense, democracy is endorsed. It was in this spirit that the late 19th century progressives pursued eugenic policies and why contemporary conservatives are suspicious towards similar progressive embrace of promises of biotechnology, among other things. And I think just as a, as a footnote, it's why in some ways uh, I think conservatives are now conflicted about the very topic that, that we were discussing yesterday about the headscarves in France, which looks on the one hand like the vanguard, I think Russ Neely's account, the vanguard again uh, addressing the false consciousness of Muslim women, right, who don't really want to wear this or simply being repressed. But the question that I think uh, Professor Mahoney raised several times is, is whether or not Islam is in some ways a different, you know, a different kind of subject. Um, so I think it, it in, in some senses the kind of conservative tendency is to think along these sort of lines, to be suspicious of this vanguard theory, but, but, but that's a complicated question. So then for all their differences, both classical and progressive liberalism, I want to suggest, are both in their own ways deeply skeptical toward democracy. Right. Uh, I'm, there used to be a joke, 
there may still be a joke here at Princeton. I don't know if it is anymore. Well, at least in the, in the politics department, that if you wanted to come and study polit the political theory, and I exclude my colleague uh, Maurizio, you could study two things. One of two things. You could study liberal democracy or democratic liberalism. Uh, and I won't attach the names to the particular people who, who, who pervade both those views. But in some ways, one, you could study with somebody who was a classical liberal, uh, or you could study with somebody who was a progressive liberal. That was, that was the scope of choice you could have. What I want to suggest uh, um, is that in contrast to classical liberal skepticism on the one hand, and what I call in, in my second book, which now has somehow got turned into one book, uh, The Odyssey of Political Theory uh, uh, and Democratic Faith, please take out the, the italic of, of, on the and, because uh, that's actually two books. Uh, but what I argue uh, in my book, Democratic Faith, is that, uh, is that beginning, is that in some ways, if one begins with a different kind of question than is the title of this particular um, panel, one might, one might uh, find or discover a kind of theory of democracy that's rooted in a tradition that I call alternatively democratic realism. Right? And that question would be, and I'm not sure I have the perfect formulation, but somewhat something along the lines of, in what ways can we understand religion to be in concurrence with what we might regard as deeply democratic suppositions? And, I, and to this end, I want to commend, and I've done this a couple of times in the conference, commend a re-engagement with the thought of Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who before Stanley Hauerwas was Time Magazine's choice for America's theologian. I think it may have been the last one. It shows you how far we've gone. Uh, and Reinhold Niebuhr, who looked not in the first instance toward what politics demanded of religion or how religion could fill the need of politics, but rather what political implications flowed from his own Christian religious belief. It is now far seldom, less read, and I think seldom read, but important book, The Children of Light and the Children of Darkness. Niebuhr articulated what he regarded as the theological grounds for a kind of concurrence of his Christian belief and a commitment to democracy. In this work, Niebuhr coined a formulation of democracy that flowed from his theological understanding of humanity as at once a creature formed in the image of God, but also fallen and sinful. In his famous formulation, he wrote, quote, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. So he holds two things that classical liberalism on the one hand and progressive liberalism separate. We have a capacity for justice that makes democracy possible, but also a kind of inclination towards sinfulness that makes it necessary. Niebuhr then holds a kind of mixed human anthropology derived from his theological understanding of creature-man that gives rise to a hopeful yet realistic view of democracy, one that I would suggest is not so dim as that in classical liberalism, nor as rosy as that in progressive liberalism, one in which religion is not the glue that makes the pieces stick together, but is in fact the source of our understanding of what makes democracy necessary. Niebuhr's, Niebuhr's approach does not formulate the relationship of religion and politics in terms of the utility of religion for a democratic polity, in contrast to the foundational texts of liberal democracy. And I would suggest by implication uh, the views indeed of some of today's most strident religious voices in today's politics, but rather points to the concurrence in particular of Christian humility and democratic respect for other persons. Here's a, a further quote from Niebuhr. Quote, religious humility is in perfect accord with the presuppositions of democratic society. Profound religion must recognize the difference between divine majesty and human creatureliness, between the unconditional character of the divine and the conditioned character of all human enterprise. According to Christian faith, pride 
which seeks to hide the conditioned and finite character of all, of all human endeavor, is the very quintessence of sin. Religious faith ought therefore to be a constant fount of humility, for it ought to encourage men to moderate their natural pride and to achieve some consciousness of the relativity of their own statement of even the most ultimate truth, even about God himself. It ought to teach them that their religion is most certainly true if it recognizes the element of error and sin, of finiteness and contingency, which creeps into statements of even the most sublime truth. The stress on the concurrence between religious humility and a kind of shared democratic life was shared by an admirer of Niebuhr's, and one I just want to mention in addition as providing this kind of, uh, I think, alternative view, the great historian and social critic Christopher Lash, who was far from self, perhaps, from being a kind of orthodox religious believer, but arguably understood better this older tradition or understanding of the relationship between the sacred and the profane than may be the case even of many contemporary believers. In contrast to the strident views of secularists who hold that people of faith assume automatically a stance of superiority against, against uncertainty, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and even perhaps against uh, uh, sometimes the, mis I think, uh, uh, um, the self-satisfied certainty of many contemporary religious believers. Lash argued that the heart of religious belief involved a searching attempt to understand one's own motivations and resisted stances of certainty and superiority that are otherwise anathema to a deep form of democratic egalitarianism. In his book, uh, his, his posthumously published book, uh, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy, he wrote in, in an essay there that, in, uh, that religious belief, uh, quote, instead of discouraging moral inquiry, religious promptings can just as easily stimulate it by calling attention to this disjunction between verbal profession and practice, by insisting that a perfunctory observance of prescribed rituals is not enough to ensure salvation, and by encouraging believers at every step question their own motivations. Far from putting doubts to rest, religion has the effect of intensifying them. It judges those who profess faith more harshly than it judges unbelievers. It holds them up to a standard of conduct so demanding that all of them inevitably fall short. For those who take religion seriously, belief is a burden, not a self-righteous claim to some privileged moral status. Self-righteousness, indeed, may be more prevalent among skeptics than believers. The spiritual discipline against self-righteousness is the very essence of religion. He saw, Lash saw that the anti-democratic tendency of so-called progressive Democrats tended toward a kind of condescension or disdain toward ordinary citizens. He wrote that among progressive Democrats, one would often detect, it, quote, a snobbish disdain for people who lack formal education and work with their hands, an unfounded confidence in the moral wisdom of experts, the vanguard, an equally unfounded prejudice against untutored common sense, a distrust of everything except science, Robert Wuthnow is, I think, referring to today, an ingrained irreverence and a disposition, which he thought was a natural outgrowth of this irreverence and distrust, a disposition to see the world as something that exists only to gratify human desires. So I have, let me conclude by saying I have a bone to pick. And it's with both of you out there, who at least I suggested at the outset, came in here knowing today already the answer to the question posed by this session, does democracy need religion? 
My beef with contemporary liberals ought to be obvious by now, so I won't rehearse it. But I also have a bone to pick with many contemporary believers who have adopted the position once held by liberal thinkers. That many of today's most strident defenders of the need for religion in the public square tend often in their own rhetoric to reduce religion to a kind of utility, to a set of beliefs that are supportive of modern democracy. In this sense, I think that, uh, um, obviously I was thinking today about uh, the, the people mentioned the Pledge of Allegiance, and uh, believers of various stripes uh, came to the defense of, the, of, of keeping the, the, the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, which I'm not opposed to, but it struck me that nobody, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses are the best theologians around these days, though actually I doubt it, uh, maybe, uh, uh, but I didn't hear anybody pointing out that the kind of deep sacrilegiousness of, of the way that the, of, of the Pledge of Allegiance is formulated, because what it says is that I pledge allegiance to the flag, da-da-da-da-da, under God. Now, if you really are, you know, sort of a good Christian, you really should be saying, I pledge allegiance under God to the flag of the United States, right? So it gets the kind of gets the order a little bit wrong. And the fact that the pledge was written by a socialist and then inserted under God by some members of the Knights of Columbus who may not have been theologically well catechized, I'm not sure, uh, suggests that at the very least uh, we ought to be reflective about what we end up defending. So let me just conclude by then suggesting that we're left in a kind of odd age in which on the one hand we have fervent secularists who are in some ways endorse a kind of democratic faith of an elite vanguard that's disdainful toward religion. And the defenders of religion, at least the most prominent, prominent and vocal, who tend to adopt the language or sensibility of civil religion. And I suppose my own view is that uh, to the extent that democracy and religion can be mutually supportive of each other, we need to abandon both of these views and return to a kind of democratic realism. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Pat, for that uh, the stimulating set of remarks. Um, I apologize for having blurred together your two books. I was quite uh, persuaded in my in my mind that the book I had picked up and looked through at the Princeton Bookstore was called Democratic Faith, and that unless I was having a serious memory collapse, there was a there was a typo in the program. Unfortunately, I've reached an age where a serious memory collapse was a perfectly good possibility, and so I, uh, I apologize. I went with the program. Uh, our next speaker today is uh, just as distinguished and uh, an appropriate uh, commenter on the, on the subject here as, as our uh, first speaker. And uh, our, this is my good colleague and, and friend, Maurizio Veroli who's in the uh, department here of, of um, politics. He's well known for his uh, uh, grasp of republicanism, the, uh, tradition, the Italian tradition and its descendants. Uh, he's uh, also a well-known specialist on Machiavelli, one of the most distinguished in the world. I'm particularly fond of the title of his uh, recent book on that subject. I'll see if I get this one right, uh, Niccolo's Smile. Um, and. Uh, and it is that uh, tradition that uh, he promises to use today to uh, bring us, uh, bring that uh, branch of enlightenment to bear on this topic. Before I in, uh, finish the introduction, though, I want to say one more thing about him, and that is a note about his, his teaching skills. I have uh, 
I'm responsible for the teaching program in the department. And uh, when I asked one of my uh, longstanding uh, senior colleagues here uh, how it is I should uh, handle this job, when I began it, he said, well, your main job is to get preceptors, which is what we call teaching assistants here, get those into the classes and make sure that the class sizes are handled in a way that's consistent with the way we do business here. And I said, well, how is that? And he said, the precepts and the seminars are limited in size by university regulations. The regular classes in the department are limited in size by the available classrooms. And then he paused and he said, and Maurizio Veroli's classes are limited by the fire marshal. <laughs> He's a distinguished, distinguished teacher uh, for whom I still have trouble finding enough uh, preceptors for the size of the classes he creates and the undergraduate enthusiasm which he generates. And he is our next speaker on the same topic, Does Democracy Need Religion? Thank you. Thank you very much, Christopher, for your very kind words, touching words for me. Um, I see it because uh, as an effect of old age, it's more comfortable for me to speak in this manner. And uh, before I uh, say a few remarks on the topic of our conversation. I want to uh, thank Professor Robert George, the leader of the Madison program, for having accepted uh, my uh, end, Pat, with Patrick's help, idea of a conference on uh, the political god of our time. Still, it remains for me a mystery why Robert George trusted me or trusted me to organize a conference politics, religion, given the fact that he totally disagrees with my politics and with my religion, which doesn't exist, so it's easy to disagree with. <laughs> but uh, I will remain, of course, uh, without an answer to this terrible existential problem. But what I know for sure is that after having heard my comments, Robert George will not make the same mistake again. <laughs> As you know, I am an historian, not a political theorist in the orthodox sense of the term. So what I mainly do in my life is not to construct theories or analyze concepts, but to try to uncover from the past ideas or words that we have forgotten and instead might help us at least to enlarge our intellectual horizons. More or less what they do, try to do is similar to the work of an archaeologist. I excavate, I clean, I clean from bad, what they think are bad interpretations. This is what they do. And therefore, uh, when the question is, does democracy need religion, what I immediately do is to look at my authors of the past, to try to excavate from their wisdom. And uh, the answer that I get from my intellectual mentors is straightforward. All the great theorists of Republican liberty stressed that you need religion if you want to have Republican liberty. 
The exceptions are almost negligible. They stressed Republican authorities, beginning, of course, with the modernity. They stress that you, you need Republican liberty, needs religion to come to life, to exist, to come into existence, to remain alive. And, which is the most fascinating aspect, if you would, to resurrect, when it is able to resurrect, from corruption or domination. Now, the first authority that I want to mention to illustrate this claim is, of course, my mentor, Niccolò Machiavelli. And I think his ideas are particularly re relevant because he was, as you know, particularly harsh about Roman Catholic religion. But there is no question that he believed that if you want to have republican liberty, you need a religion. Where uh, there is religion, writes Machiavelli, one presupposes every good. Where there, and where there is, when religion is missing, one presupposes the contrary. For Machiavelli, all the free peoples of antiquity and modernity were religious. No exceptions. No exceptions. The most irreligious people were also the most unfree. The example were the Italians. Italians because of the bad teaching of the Catholic Church had become for Machiavelli irreligiosi e cattivi, irreligious and wicked. But they also were also the most unfree. There is no exception to this rule. And when Machiavelli uh, has to want to explain why religion is necessary, he stresses that that is a point worth meditating, I think, that religion is more necessary in republics than in principalities. Because, to sum summarize his argument, if you do not have the fear of God, if the, cit the citizens do not have the fear of God, then you need the fear of the prince. So the message is clear. Either the fear of God or the fear of the prince. If you continue into the analysis of great Republican thinkers, you get the same answer. Consider, of course, another giant in the Republican tradition, Le Citoyen de Genève, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Toute religion est utile au corps politique. Religion is useful to political body. Jamais État fut fondé, ne fut fondé que la religion ne lui servit de base. Never a state was founded without religion as its basis or foundation. Master Tocqueville is even more explicit. The great usefulness of religion is even more apparent among more egalitarian peoples than elsewhere. Despotism may be able to do without faith, but freedom cannot. Despotism may be able to do without faith, but freedom cannot. And religion, I'm quoting from Democracy in America, that is much more needed in republics than in monarchies. More in republics than in monarchies. So the answer is unanimous. But if you want, just, I must 
this junction, quote uh, another master of Republican. This is our the prophet of the Italian Risorgimento, Giuseppe Mazzini, who in all his life stressed a very single principle. As he puts it, I do not know from history any major conquest in the struggle for political liberty that was not sustained by a religious faith. And in fact, he tried to build the faith that he thought it was necessary to attain liberty. The next question, of course, we have to ask to continue the investigation is why Republican thinkers consider religion so essential for democratic policy. Why? What is the argument that was offered? Again, I want to summarize, I summarize uh, because I want to allow as much time as possible for discussion. Let's, for convenience sake, begin again with Machiavelli. Machiavelli stresses that religion, first of all, is necessary to found republics. What he means by this is a historical observation. Namely, the great legislators of antiquity, like Lycurgus and Solon, were able to persuade their fellow compatriots to accept republican orders because they were able to persuade them that they were inspired by God. Inspired by God. And uh, Master Nicolas saw with his own eyes that the founder of the Republic of Florence in 1494 was a Dominican monk, Savonarola, who persuaded the Florentines who were not at all naive, certainly by historical standards, but not, that he was inspired by God. The message here is less naive than it might appear. It's the idea that founders have some divine quality founders have exceptional moral qualities. This makes them similar to God and they are capable of persuading their fellow citizens that they are special. Irrational, unjustifiable, of course, but this is what Republican thinkers believed. Maybe irrational, but it is effective. The second reason why religion is necessary is, is that you need religion to have good armies. That is a serious business. And why you need religion to have? Because soldiers are required to take the oath. The oath to defend the republican liberty even at the price of their lives. Now, Machiavelli says... If they don't believe in God, how can I... Pre what is the meaning of their oath? It's meaningless. And if, it, if the oath is meaningless, you do not have good armies. If you do not have good armies, as soon as you are invaded, you are conquered. And if you are conquered, there is no Republican liberty. It doesn't... It's a, it's a, a reasoning of this kind. Then you need, there is a beautiful passage in the art of war, but I will quote it later on, maybe. Then Machiavelli insists, and later political theorists also insisted, that you need religion to animate the people, animate the people, 
to give animus, to give strength. To do what? To resist, to resist the nobles, to resist the arrogant citizens, to fight back. So the idea that in Machiavelli there is a religion as instrumentum regni is almost a joke. For him, religion was instrumentum libertatis. You need religion for Machiavelli and other theorists, which is, this is a point I find particularly fascinating, to instill the sense of shame, vergogna, the sense of shame. Sense of shame, in the, in the proper sense, the verecundia, is the, the sufferance that you experience when you do something wrong before your conscience is not the sense of shame before others, your neighbors, your colleagues. <laughs> I have experienced this sense many times. <laughs> is the inward sense of, and Machiavelli's idea is only religion is capable of generating this sense of shame that prevents people from doing wrong things regardless of the possibility of the sanction. And religion is necessary to strengthen civic duties because it builds a feeling of obligation with your own conscience and therefore helps good morals. Religion finally is necessary to provide the strength to overcome military defeats and national tragedies and to find the moral resources to resurrect from corruption. As Machiavelli writes in the discourses, Rome resurrected after the invasion of the French, I mean, your predecessor, but you don't, don't hold you responsible for this, because they renewed the orders of the ancient religion. Now, if we, do, we move forward in uh, the history of political thought, we find again the same series of arguments. And particularly when the question is not so much to defend political liberty, but to conquer or to attain it. To attain it when you have to fight against oppressive regimes. And again, people like Mazzini insisted that religion, understood as the willingness of the individual to make possible, to translate into reality a moral ideal is essential, is essential in processes of political emancipation. You need this type of religious faith to conquer liberty. After all, just a simple consideration, I think, is in order here. Why would someone risk his or her life in the risorgimento or in the resistenza for self-interest, certainly not, because what you get is that you are in prison or exiled or executed. So self-interest cannot be a motivation. Morality it has to be extremely strong, but morality, in understood as adherence to principles, is not sufficient unless you have faith in those principles. And that's why in Italian history there is, I think, the most moving evidence, one of the many possible evidences, of how religion is in fact essential to conquer liberty.
from an oppressive regime. In the years between 1920 and 1930s, when a political religion existed in Italy, and that was the fascist regime, the best anti-fascist leaders and thinkers, they all insisted on the need to rediscover, as Croce put it, a religion of liberty. If you want to win against the religion of the nation, the religion of the race, the religion of the religion, you need another religion. Why you need it? Because it has, you need a sense of profound faith that commands devotion and the capacity and the willingness to sacrifice yourself. Otherwise, you don't have the initiators of the process of emancipation. Emancipation doesn't begin unless there are people who are sustained by this type of faith. Well, the question last I want to uh, address because, and makes, uh, I think, uh, immediately evokes many of our discussions. Let's suppose that we agree with the Republican thing, that you need a religion for very important reasons. The question is, which kind of religion do you want? Well, here the Republican camp divides. There is a wide consensus on the view that Catholicism cannot be the kind of religion you need. The argument again was started by Machiavelli. Our religion, he means the religion taught by the Roman Catholic Church, has glorified humble and contemplative people. It has made the world weak and therefore an easy prey for wicked criminal men. Cannot be Christian, uh, Catholic religion. This I want to comment briefly. If you have a religion that teaches you successful, that there is merit and value in suffering, that you'll get your reward in the afterlife, that real strength is the strength in enduring sufferings that come from the wickedness of men, their ambition, their cruelty, you cannot have a civic religion, and I doubt you can have Republican, Republican liberty at all. However, the... The, after aside from the agreement on responsibilities of Roman Catholic Church, but I could go on forever on this, there is a serious division within the Republican camp. Some maintained that the reformed Christian religion that rediscovered its original principles, a reformed Christian religion that rediscovered its principles, and I will say what I'm referring to, could be a strong ally of Republican liberty. Others maintain that Christian religion is hopeless. And Republican liberty needs an entirely different type of religion, a purely civic religion, or a religion of duty, something like this. You have no Machiavelli is the representative of the first line of thought that you that you can count on Christian religion if properly reinterpreted. Rousseau is the spokesman of the other tradition. So I, that's the point I would have liked to raise with Professor Elstein. We can speak of two concepts of civic religion. One that is prepared to look for an alliance with the reformed Christianity 
another that wants to establish itself against Christianity. The last remark, of course, must be uh, about the question that I think occupies us all. And here I have to be less an historian, namely, what do we need today? I think, and no one will be surprised by my remarks, that we should follow Machiavelli's wisdom, not Rousseau's wisdom. We should try, I think, to reinforce or regenerate a civil religion. Here I, I agree with the remarks of my American colleagues, friends. We need it for the reasons that I have explained. If a republican polity needs citizens with a deep sense of duty, now this sense of duty cannot be instilled by appealing to their interests or by moral arguments. You need to touch their feelings, their passions, their imaginations. That can only be done by a civil religion. I don't see, however, what another manner of doing Then, if we agree on this, the question is to follow, I think the best way procedure is to follow Machiavelli's wisdom. It is to say, to reinforce or regenerate a civil religion with the help of a Christian religion and of all traditions, religious traditions, willing to help. What I have in mind here is an alliance between Christian religion and Republican liberty similar to the one that Tocqueville noticed in America. You know what Tocqueville needed, namely he saw in America an alliance that in his mind had no precedent whatsoever in history. When the religion regarded civil liberty as its best friend, and civil liberty regarded religion as a precious ally. Now, my position is that an alliance between Republican liberty and Christian religion would help both Republican institutions and Christian religion, both would benefit. The question, of course, is whether the alliance is at all possible. It has surely been possible in the past. And I see no compelling reason why it shouldn't be possible in our time. But there is also a, if you allow me, I rarely speak theoretically. I tend to remain in uh, the historical terrain. But there is, it seems to me there is a profound common ground between Christian religion and Republican and civic religion. Civic religion. And this common ground has a very clear, obvious name. is Caritas. Deus est Caritas, as the encyclical letter of Pope, the, the Pope Benedict XVI says, but Caritas was also the core of Republican patriotism as it emerged in the 13th, 14th, and 15th century. Caritas was exactly the center of that concept. Amor patrie in radice caritatis fundatur. This is from the De Regimine or 
as you like to say, the, you Americans, the regime in a principum. In the section written by Ptolemy, look at Ptolemy, look a Dominican preacher, a pupil, a continuator of Aquinas. And the idea is that what is patriotism is amor patria. What is amor patria is the practice of caritas. Caritas toward your fellow citizens, caritas toward the republic. But if you read uh, other texts, like for instance, the Oratio de Caritate, written, uh, uh, read in 1478, in Florence, by Giovanni Nesi, you know the words with which he opens the Orazione? Deus caritas est, exactly like the Pope. You Republican thinker of the 15th century, and Pope Benedict XVI are saying exactly the same thing. Which and what Nazi means, and all Republican thinkers meant, meant by that, is that caritas is what made God, what moved God to descend from heaven to earth. But caritas is also what made men, human beings, to move from earth to heaven and become similar to God. La carità ci rende simili al creatore. What is the consequence of all this? The consequence is that patriotism, understood in this manner and only in this manner, is the core of republican civic religion. So the core of Republican civic religion is exactly the, the Christian concept of caritas, adapted, transformed from the love of God, the love of Christ, into the caritas republice, the caritas civium. Of course, in theory, civic religion can do without Christian religion. And I, I, uh, I agree with the comment of Professor Mahoney, well, I think you were suspicious about the idea of making the state the only object of our faith. You were suspicious and reluctant to reduce all, or to move, or to concentrate our devotion to the political realm. But this idea would have sounded to Republican thinkers of the 15th century and 14th century just absurd, as it sounds to you. In fact, they were not. They didn't deify, consider the republic a divinity, but they were Christians and republicans. They were profoundly Christian, profoundly republican. Here, of course, there is a problem for the students of republicanism. The problem is this. We have not paid attention to the religious dimension of classical republic. We have forgotten that in republics such Florence or Venice would have, been, would have sounded absurd to claim that you can be a good republican leader, good leader the, without being a Christian, because they saw no contradiction whatsoever. And what made the continuity of the alliance possible the concept of caritas. When the idea of a republican Christianity did not emerge for the first time in America, even if Tocqueville believes it emerged in 15th century Florence. It emerged in 14th century Siena and Venice. What is the theoretical conclusion, if there is one? 
Suppose you have available a religion that says more or less this. You have a religion which deserves your solicitude, but you also have a country that says that the duties of a good Christian are in no way in contrast with the sacred duties of a citizen, that says that religion is of inestimable worth, but also your constitution is invaluable, that you have obligation to your children, to your country, but also to heaven. And your obligation to heaven command you to defend the Constitution. Suppose you have a religion that says you must protect both your faith and your liberty. Well, what I was reading is a simply a sermon delivered in Connecticut in 1799. Suppose you have a religion that teaches that if you want to be a good Christian, you must be a good citizen, that you must practice caritas toward your fellow citizens and other peoples. You must discharge your civic duties. You might obey legitimate laws, resist tyrannical powers. Wouldn't it be a good thing? Well, if it is a good thing for political liberty, it would certainly be a good thing for religion to rediscover the centrality of caritas. And if it is a good thing for both, I think it would be wise to work to make it happen. I want to restate my initial point, I think, really, I think that Republican liberty needs religion. And the kind of religion that is needed is precisely a religion that puts the concept of caritas at the center. Patrick was absolutely right. Secularists should abandon their animosity suspicion about what is irrational or seems not to be rationally justifiable. There is a world of things that cannot be rationally justified and enormously important, particularly in politics, if you take politics seriously. The believers should care less, I think, about truth and be really loyal to that principle of caritas. Thank you very much. We have uh, about half an hour here for questions. I'll uh, get up from my chair so that our two speakers can get at each other and uh, you have a chance to uh, ask questions of them as well. I'll follow uh, Robbie's lead in uh, asking first for questions from any of the students who are here. I was referring to, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm under instructions to uh, try to repeat, and this will be a, a, a challenge for me, but I'll do my, I'll do my best. Uh, the question was uh, the distinction between Rousseau and Locke and their view of the effect of government on people's character, Rousseau taking the view that the government can, in the long run, shape people's character, and uh, Locke taking the view that the, that, that, was, that, uh, that was untrue. 
And the question was directed to Professor Denis. Thank you. Uh, Mike, that, thanks for that question. Uh, I was really referring to the somewhat limited passage that was actually referred to in several previous sessions in uh, Book 4, Chapter 8, uh, in Rousseau's discussion of civil religion. Although I, I will acknowledge, and I, in that sense, I think there is some degree of similarity between the Lockean and the Rousseauian understanding of a kind of salutary belief in God, the, the idea that there is punishments in the after, or rewards in the afterlife, and both allow for considerable space of worship uh, uh, short of uh, practices that are intolerant. Um, so in that sense, there's similarity. I will readily agree with you that in other sections, both of the social contract and throughout Rousseau's corpus, he has an entirely different view of, and I think that's where more of the wacky stuff comes from. Uh, and in particular, and we've talked about this before, but, uh, but his formulation of the formation of a people by the legislator uh, in which People, as he, as he says uh, in that, in that uh, chapter, uh, people's natures are changed, so to speak, or formed by the, by the legislator. In this sense, that part of Rousseau is in the camp of the progressive liberals that I was talking about, a, pro a progressive camp, which is to say human beings are essentially plastic and can be formed. And I think we would agree that governments can shape or can help shape some character you know, for good or ill, of a, of a citizenry, but the idea that a government can sort of reach down into the core of your being completely, you know, completely reshape who you are suggests uh, this view of humanity that is infinitely malleable and therefore tends toward a politics that is a politics of ideology in which governments uh, see themselves justified in reforming uh, people, no matter, uh, making people straight in, in uh, uh, Isaiah Berlin's idea of the crooked timber of humanity and whatever needs to be done, however many twigs you have to break in order to do that. Other student questions first. I didn't see you. Thank you. Okay. I haven't kept up my, my subscription has lapsed. Secondly, regarding Reinhold Niebuhr, you talked to Gary Dorian at Union Seminary, the professor of history and liberal theology. And the chair, the Reinhold Niebuhr chair, he will tell you that there is not a single instance that he can find where Reinhold Niebuhr advocated a policy that was against the interests of the United States. So in, in that sense, uh, when you talk about interests, and, and I'm The uh, question briefly put was Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, Christian realism, to which uh, Professor Deneen referred earlier, and the role of interest, uh, and uh, I take it to be self-interest uh, in, in, or national self-interest, uh, that plays in uh, the role that plays in Niebuhr's thought, and uh, the characterization of Niebuhr's thought in which uh, he never went against the interest of the United States. So the uh, question uh, raises the issue of what is the role of interest in generating 
a civil religion, and and uh, I took it to mean a little bit of possible cynicism there that it might come to to be uh, to have a self. So, so what role does interest play in the generation of a civil civil religion? Let me actually address, um, try to address head-on the question about Niebuhr. Um, and I guess we'd have to look down the list of all the policies of the U.S. that he, he supported over his life. But, it, but my, my short and perhaps uh, too quickly dismissive answer, though I'm, I'm quite serious about it, it may be that Niebuhr was actually right uh, in, in his positions. And what's striking about Niebuhr, in the, in the, in the uh, early and, and middle of, of, the, of, of U.S. history, is he took positions that would have been deemed as relatively inconsistent uh, in, the current, in the political landscape of, its of his time. So he was, uh, he broke uh, quite uh, visibly with uh, a kind of very strong pacifist tradition in World War II. Uh, to confront and, and oppose the Nazi regime and supported the effort. And he was, let's remember, he was German, uh, first generation, was Paul was the first generation German descent, uh, first generation German descent. So that not only was that striking, uh, but also broke with the pacifist inclination of most of the uh, of sort of the mainline Christians of his time. Uh, then he was, uh, he opposed uh, communism. After that, and he supported the Cold War. Now we could debate whether that was a good thing or not, but I think many now conclude that you know, not uh, the uh, communist uh, Russian communist regime was not a wholesome uh, 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 was not a wholesome regime. Uh, and I think if you go down the list of Niebuhr's positions, they were it was of a fabric of his understanding of. If, I don't think it was in the first instance because it was America, but because it seemed to him that it was, it was these positions were right. The fact that the U.S was, he thought, consistently on the right side in these questions is of, of great interest. And I think that's something that fascinated him uh, and why he became so fascinated with a study of U.S. intellectual and political history. Uh, becomes, I mean, becomes a, a great admirer of Madison in the first instance. Uh, and here's where, in an interesting way, a kind of Christian realism and sort of classic liberalism have a, have a, a kind of family resemblance in a lot of respects because of a kind of understanding of the limits of human being, the tendency toward a kind of self-interestedness and sinfulness, and the need and, and recognition of, uh, uh, of a constitution, of, of, uh, of forms of government that acknowledge those things, that government can't be based on wishful thinking for the progression of human beings toward a, toward a better and ever, ever better form. Uh, I, I should also just mention that Niebuhr uh, wrote uh, a really uh, a, a astonishing, perceptive, and and uh, eloquent reflection on Lincoln's second inaugural, which he thought was one of the great texts in some ways, I don't want to say America's civil religion, but in some ways America's religious self-understanding, which was a recognition in his view of the, of the distinction that needs to be recognized by statesmen, that there may be a distinction between the ways of God and the ways of men. And perhaps because that was a part of America's self-understanding, which the under God and the Pledge of Allegiance reflects, even if it's not well positioned in the pledge itself, is one reason why America may deserve more allegiance in the first instance, because it has, as part of its self-understanding, a recognition of its own limits that other regimes, perhaps, and certainly ideological regimes of the 20th century, uh, both, both totalitarian regimes of Nazism and communism, do not acknowledge or did not acknowledge. Yeah, I think uh, the question of interest uh, is absolutely crucial in the answer about citizenship, namely makes perfect sense and it has been discussed in the literature. The
the question, what advantage do I have to be a good citizen? You can provide a rational argument based on self-interest as why one should be a good citizen, except leave it now aside, do not consider now the fact that there are even better reasons for not being a good citizen. It's much easier to persuade people not to be good from the point of view of self-interest. But in the case of a civic religion, I think the question of interest, as far as I may, I may be wrong, but it doesn't seem to apply, because imagine a question like this, what interest do I have to have faith in liberty? would sound like, what interest do I have to have faith in Christ? It sounds not to be pertinent, the question. Since civic religion is, we said, in the Republican tradition, is in fact patriotism. Patriotism is its love of country, it's caritas. It's a form of caritas. Caritas is a type of love different from eros. It's agape. Well, if you bring interest into discussions of situations of love doesn't sound pertinent. There's a um, very tough-minded discussion, actually, in Niebuhr's Moral Man and Immoral Society, uh, which you may remember, about the role of interest in generating ideological positions that, that bears, I think, on your, on your question, too. Uh, I guess the, I'll take the floor as open. I'll work uh, back this way. Uh, gentleman in the back there. Question. Question had two parts. The first was whether, in Professor Veroli's argument, combining love of man with love of God might lead to allegiances uh, beyond the secular and therefore lead away from a civic uh, republicanism. And secondly, whether the shared interest in, in caritas uh, by both our speakers here at the front, uh, uh, in what ways those were uh, similar and distinct. Gentlemen. My answer is very simple. Uh, I'm not worried at all by the possibility of a split um, practice of caritas. Caritas toward the republic, toward the fellow citizen, toward other people whom you perceive in need of help because they are suffering or they are precious or fragile is not at all uh, diminished or contrasted by the fact that the same person is also 
feels caritas for Christ, for God. You see, I don't see any danger in this, neither from a theoretical point of view, nor from a political point of view, which is the one that concerns me most. I'd actually like to respond to this. Uh, in the, at the, uh, the last chapter of, uh, of, of the book on democratic faith, I do talk about and I guess call for a kind of reconsideration of what I call democratic charity, which mm -hmm. is, and here I understand it more in, I guess, classic uh, Christian terms, um, albeit ones that I think here again there's a concurrence of those, that a kind of understanding in Christian understanding with, with the democratic understanding. And my text here is less Machiavelli, I must admit, uh, than, uh, than the, 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 the New Testament, and in particular, uh, Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter sure. 12, which is, I, I take as one of the, the truly great uh, articulations of what, what Christian love is, or caritas, mm. or charity. And, and that's a particularly revealing chapter uh, in Paul, uh, because what he, he begins, I mean, everyone quotes this passage from Paul, Corinthians, uh, for their weddings. Love is kind, love is patient, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's very nice. But nobody pays attention to what precedes that whole passage, which is a discussion of the different kind of work that we do, right? That some people are prophets, some people are priests, some people are healers. That we all have a different kind of work. And Paul then goes on to say, we are like parts of a body. We are like parts of a, uh, of a body that each part does a kind of work. Uh, and it would be wrong for each part to think that its kind of work is complete, that it's like the hand may be so self-deluded and think I do all the thinking for this body. Uh, but, uh, but a proper understanding is that we are parts or we live lives of partiality as part of a larger whole. Now, this, I think, is in some ways comportment with what, what you're suggesting. Um, but one of the things that, that, uh, that Paul is suggesting as well is that while we in some ways assume we're parts of a whole, we cannot know the true whole. We cannot know the true whole. And I think when you place this idea of caritas within the political whole, there's a way that that whole can, can perhaps be reduced to the city or to the polity. And what Paul is doing is saying that there's a whole of which we're a part that we cannot perfectly perceive. And that is what gives us a kind of, again, a grain of humility and calls for a kind of caritas, a kind of generosity and love for others because we have to recognize our shared partiality. And so in that, again, in that passage in, in Corinthians 12, there's the famous line, we see through a glass darkly, right, that we only see uh, partially in this time. And so again, I think one of the, one of the ways, we, one of the preeminent ways or preliminary ways or fundamental ways that we recognize our partiality is, is in some ways the longing for a whole of which we cannot completely or perfectly perceive. Uh, behind you, Robbie. No, first. Uh, this is a variation, I think, on uh, what we've been talking about, especially with Matt, Matt's question. So for Professor Baroli, uh, your description of Caritas does sound a lot like the desires of Rosetti and even Jacques Maritain, for that matter. So Gaudium and Spence. But 
Oh, I'm sorry. I need to. I need to summarize. Um, I let's skip it. Go ahead. Yes. Let's skip. <laughs> <laughs> the enthusiasm of this charitable decision to <laughs> spare us <laughs> and him. <laughs> now, uh, thank you very much for, for your question. See, uh, the, the balance between the two types of caritas, the, car the let's call uh, love of country and love of God, uh, in the tradition you are referring to was not even discussed, not even discussed. You know why? Because the people you were referring to, you quoted the Rosselli. Maybe you could have, Rosselli was very deeply indebted uh, to the teaching of Mazzini, as, as you know, the tradition. Now, Rosselli, the, their idea was that you have, I know that sounds <coughs> strange and familiar, but the, the idea was that you have an obligation to God, understood in the case of Mazzini in a deistic manner, but was God, is full of reference to God, to make your fellow human beings free, because God does not tolerate slavery, servitude on earth, simply. So what you don't see in, but it's not their fault, <laughs> it's our fault. We don't see that for almost all Republican thinkers, until Rossellis, for sure, uh, there is a profound religious dimension that comes from a particular interpretation of Christianity. That's the question. That's why we keep thinking of, but Republicans should be, should be fiercely rational based second. We think it was. In reality, it was not. So for them, the issue that you very nicely raised, and it's an essential question, was not a problem. Because for, for them, the two voices, that's the, the voice of Christian religion and the voice of moral consciousness, they speak in the same manner. That's why they were ferociously anti-Catholic. But you know why? Because they thought the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church was corrupting the real Christian message. I mean, take... Not for me. <laughs> no, how deep I am in theological. We're gaining on 4.30. I'm going to take uh, three more. Gentlemen in the back. A um, religious sociologist, uh, Roger Bacon, some years back, made the case that the disestablishment clause, the fact that there's no official religion, yeah. is what accounts for the high level of religiosity, which Profil and a number of others have commented on. And it's the absence of a strong sense of national religion that breeds the kind of where you're driving church membership up. Sure. And so you look at the 19th century, compared to England, where there's a church of England, our sense of a civic religion is kind of thin, but our church attendance rates by all travelers' accounts would be a lot greater. Fast forward then to the 1950s in post-war America, it seems to me that we see the beginning of civil religion arising during this period, at least in a fixed sense, 
And yet, if we look over the last 50 years, I would argue that civil religion has grown stronger, and secularization has also grown stronger. And uh, so there seems to be kind of a disconnect um, between a strong, robust sense of religiosity on one hand and civil religion on the other. They're not necessarily in correlation. And I was thinking about some of Peter Roller's remarks earlier. And I, perhaps it could be that with civil religion by its very function, what you're trying to do is appeal to the lowest common denominator. You're, you're, you're watering down religion. And so in the 1950s, Ronald Niebuhr is uh, arguing that proselytizing to everyone is no longer necessary. And, um, and, and so perhaps this kind of bland, universal appeal in which religious differences and thus the robustness of religion is watered down, that you may be blunting religion. Question was, the more, is it true that the more civic religion you have, the less real religion you have? Um, yeah, this actually gives me a chance to also respond to one of Maurizio's more outrageous claims, uh, uh, which is, of course, your, the observation of the sociologist you mentioned is, is one that uh, clearly goes back uh, at least to Tocqueville, who recognizes that it's the disestablishment in America that has also led to this uh, flourishing of religion in America that he sees in the 1830s. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, when people now read Tocqueville, and I say this about, uh, in particular, and here I want to, again, pick a, pick a bit of a fight maybe with some, maybe some people in this room, uh, who tend to read Tocqueville as recommending his own version of civil religion, which I think is the sort of version that we got from Maurizio uh, a few moments ago, that, uh, that Tocqueville is, is recommending religion for its usefulness for democracy. I think that's a, that's a misread of democracy in America. Uh, because it, it's, easy, it's, it's always easy to confuse it because it does look, and he actually uses the language, the usefulness of religion. But its usefulness lies in its capacity, in its non-civil religious form, to resist the way in which democracies tend to make everything into what's useful for democracy. In other words, it's a kind of barrier against turning everything into a kind of utilitarian uh, a, a way of seeking a kind of uh, the, the utility of, of whatever it is that you that uh, that, you, that you're considering, and so actually I, I, I didn't have time to, 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 to refer to this passage, but let me let me just use this opportunity to, to refer to it because it, it starts off by talking about Tocqueville's talking about the usefulness of religion, but look at the direction he takes it in. Uh, he writes that the usefulness of religion uh, is even more apparent among egalitarian peoples than elsewhere. One must admit that equality, while it brings great benefits to mankind, opens the door to very dangerous instincts. It tends to isolate men from each other so that each thinks only of himself. It lays the soul open to inordinate love of material pleasure. The greatest advantage of religion is to inspire diametrically opposed contrary urges. Every religion, and here he means religion, not civil religion, places the object of man's desires outside and beyond worldly goods and naturally lifts the soul into regions far above the realm of the senses. Every religion also imposes on each man some obligations toward mankind to be reformed in common with the rest of mankind, and so draws him away from time to time from thinking about himself. Now, I take that passage in particular, it takes us beyond worldly goods, is a, kind of, is a stress upon the way in which he's not talking here about civil religion. It's precisely the way in which it's resistant to the, uh, to, the, to the way in which I, I think he sees democracy as having this kind of tendency to turn things into, uh, turn 
democratic man into a sort of utility seekers, that which, advantage, uh, which, which gains advantage for us. So I think reading Tocqueville as a civil religionist is incorrect. And I, and I agree with you for that reason, that as civil religion makes inroads. And Bella's only, Bella's is really only a kind of, you know, people that came on the scene seem to come out of nowhere. But, you know, again, go back and read Dewey's Common Faith. This is, this is a very longstanding trope uh, of, of the search for this kind of watered-down kind of quasi-Christianity that, that can comport with, with people's general views. Uh, uh, that as, as you see a sort of advance in that, and here I agree with Peter, that you see also an advance of a kind of hollowing out of religion in some senses, in, the, in this sense. Maybe civil religion is a, a watered-down, nice expression, watered-down form of religion compared to, let's call them, religious practices based on the revealed religion. Maybe I, I wouldn't disagree with some believer holding this view, but uh, are we sure? Namely, when I read letters of martyrs of the Italian resistance saying I'm dying because of my faith in freedom, are you prepared to say that that faith is of a lesser genuinity, intensity than the faith of the believer in Christ? You, maybe. For me, no. For me, I am not prepared to make this hierarchy of faith. And uh, if I have to choose between a stronger civic religion, in my sense, this type of commitment to liberty based on the interpretation of caritas, and revealed in the strength of revealed religions, if it were, I don't believe it is the case at all, that the two are in conflict or competition, but if I had to choose between a strong civic religion and the strength of revealed religions, I would certainly say I prefer to have a strong civic religion. And you know the reason. Not simply because I am an unrepentant secular person. Maybe this is it. Maybe. But I would like to tell myself that the reason is because I care about things like political oppression. I care about meaninglessness, the absence of... Uh, moral moral concern for sufferances that we can avoid on this world. And since I am practically sure that civic religion could do something to alleviate sufferances in this world, and uh, the revered religion has more to do about the afterlife, I am cons because I am more concerned with this world, I would take uh, give priority to civic religion over revealed religion. Take one from this side. Colin. Just a quick follow-up about the So does that mean in your opinion that the human body is more The question was, is the human body more important than the human soul? <laughs>
question is whether non-Western democracies not founded on religion raise issues about the arguments made by the speakers. I don't know the answer to this. I, I, I can only the only thing I can acknowledge is that they were both imposed by the West. So I think the jury's out. No, I, I have no idea about the question. I'm sorry, I confess my ignorance. Only know that my book for love of country is about to be translated in Korean, in Japan, and in uh, uh, Chinese. When I see the reactions to that. There to my ideas in those countries, I can give you an answer, but now I'm terribly ignorant about this. I am sorry to have to acknowledge it, but I prefer to admit to be ignorant rather to invent uh, obscure answers. I'll take one last one uh, since we finished the previous two rather quickly. Gentleman here. question was whether a secular version of Caritas doesn't slip Roman Catholicism back in. I think uh, from a historical point of view, the answer is simple, namely that Republican political ideology and Republican institutions grew in a strongly Christian context in Italy and Europe. And the fact that I, uh, my considerations, my critical remarks about the Catholic Church do not touch at all the value of the Christian principle that comes from the letter to the Corinthians, that's the locus classicus, uh, within the Christian tradition. I am, I am prepared to say that historically the emergence of a republican political theory was made possible by the existence of a Christian context in which the central value was the value of Caritas. And the question uh, about the Catholic Church is simply, is simply this. Where was the Caritas in holding a political, oppressive, theocratic state that used to burn dissidents, heretics, to, you know what, what kind of popes were Renaissance popes? I think that is too civilized, too gentle, this auditorium to describe their kind of lives. If I were a Christian, I would have been disgusted by those people. And in fact, the most genuinely religious minds of Italy are those who were 
profoundly offended by the behavior of the Catholic Church. Hmm? Oh, sure. Oh, that is, how you know, it, as Machiavelli said, are cattivi, remember this, cattivi, irreligious. They go to church, but they have no religion. Pat, a final word. Well, I, I actually just want to, I wanted to uh, respond to a claim that, and maybe this also related to Colleen's question earlier, a claim that Maurizio made just in passing that uh, uh, he's concerned more about politics in the world than the afterlife. What well, they meant by, by body, but we understood each other. And I, I would actually want to dispute that. And I'd actually, I, I would want to dispute that um, in, in ways I was thinking. I thought we might get a question going along the lines of how can you reconcile the two of you? And I sort of had this prepared. This actually is an entree to a response to a question we didn't get. But it seems to me that there's a considerable point of contact between your version of civil religion and what I'm suggesting is a kind of democratic realism that has draws on a tradition of, of Christian realism, which, I mean, the emphasis is on realism. And think of, of, of out of the, coming out of the Augustinian tradition as it's articulated by many thinkers, including a, a person like Niebuhr. There's, and Maritza and I used to, used to teach a class together on political rhetoric. And, and the one thing we agreed upon was the importance of rhetoric because we agreed on the importance of politics. Politics was, in some senses, inescapable. And for all our many differences in our backgrounds, we both share a kind of realism and, 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 and the idea that politics is fundamentally escapable in, in the, this time. And one of the, my critiques of this progressive liberal view is that it actually puts us on a road toward the aspiration to the elimination of politics in some yeah, senses. Uh, and so you and I both agree on it, and we agree on it, we come at it from different places. But you can also think that there's a, there's a long just war tradition. Uh, there's a very much a stress in this democratic realist tradition on statesmanship, and go back to City of God, Book 19. And I think uh, we share probably fundamentally a view that politics has to take place within some kind of national context. We're not cosmopolitans in that regard. So I want to actually dispute the idea that we're talking about political versus non-political. I think, though, and this maybe goes back to something Peter Lawler was saying earlier, that one of the things that your view perhaps is ultimately constrained is that it doesn't take into account the soul and doesn't take into account what perhaps transcends the nation, transcends politics, and therefore perhaps lacks a, a point of limiting what politics can both demand of us and what uh, we, we demand of it. So I would just want to draw that, that both point of similarity and point of distinction. Uh, at, before I turn this over to, uh, to Robbie for Volley de Carre, uh, I want to thank a, a series of people. Um, and first, our speakers here at, at this session. Uh, sec and let, let's give them a round of applause. Secondly, uh, Maurizio and Ravi for all the work they did organizing this. And then above all, because I'm a faculty member who runs an occasional conference and I know who does the actual work of getting these things yes. done, I'd like to thank Judy Rivkin in the back. <laughs> thank you all for coming here. It's been a particular pleasure for a uh, uh, confused Episcopalian like myself, or perhaps that's repetitive, uh, to listen to listen to all of you, and I'll turn it over to Robbie. Thank you very, very uh, much, Chris. I want to take this opportunity uh, once again to say a very special word of thanks to all of our speakers. Uh, this was a remarkable set of presentations, and I am just deeply impressed with the care that went uh, into the reflection informing uh, the papers. 
we have uh, discussed much, but I think that we're all left with much to reflect on uh, and talk about in our conversations uh, with each other as a result of the wonderful papers that were uh, presented. Particularly, again, I wish to thank the European uh, participants. You have uh, enormously enhanced the quality of our deliberation here, and I'm uh, most grateful to you. Uh, and finally, once again, I, I thank my great uh, colleague, Maurizio Veroli, who uh, put together this conference. Uh, he is uh, the uh, person responsible for uh, bringing us together for these reflections, and uh, I know you join me in uh, thanking him very, very much. We are adjourned.